0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. And this week, I'm very pleased to say we have Philip Slavitsky on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, The Soviet Occupation of Germany, Hunger, Mass Violence, and the Struggle for Peace, 1945 to 1947. As I told Philip in the pre-interview, I thought that I knew a lot about this Topic. I had read uh, the classic work in, in the uh, in in the field a long time ago, and um, but it turns out I didn't really know as much as I thought. Philip has done a lot of really terrific uh, um, work in the I almost said Soviet in the Russian archives and Garf in Garfin particularly. Garf is a big Russian archive, state Russian archive and has uncovered some truly eye-opening things. I'm I'm amazed by this. And these are things that you never, ever would have seen under the Soviets. They would never have allowed this sort of stuff out about the occupation. But the current Russian regime, I guess, has a much more liberal attitude toward the uh, archival materials that they give excellent historians like Philip. And Philip has used them to great effect in this book. So first of all, thank you for writing the book, Philip, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Marshall. Absolutely. Uh, Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, where do I begin? There's the book which began as a PhD project in a general sense and developed uh, into something that was quite different. Uh, I began with an interest in the Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe and Central Europe after the Second World War. And that became an interest really into the development of post-war Stalinism and the development of the post-war world. And and although this book is very much focused in Soviet-occupied Germany, it is as much a story about the difficult transition from war to peace that faced Eastern and Western Europe after the Second World War and concerned with that question which has arisen, a long-overdue question which has arisen in the past decade or so, of why it took so long for Europe to emerge from the shadow of the Second World War. Um, and that's really bringing me on to my recent, uh, current research, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's no problem which at is, all. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's who I am. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wrote this while I was at, uh, largely while I was at the University of Melbourne under the um, my former advisor, Steve Wheatcroft. Uh, now I'm working at Deakin University as a research fellow and I'm just back from Moscow, Mm. in the archives again, looking at uh, the problem of post-war violence, not in Germany, but in the Soviet Union. Mm. And not unsurprisingly, many of the problems that we see in the Soviet occupation forces uh, in post-war Germany are quite similar to those that we see in domestic security and military forces within Soviet borders. So it's a very interesting uh, sort of transition that I'm making going back to Soviet Russia, if you will, and seeing so much of what was wrong in its eastern empire that is wrong in its domestic sphere.
0: Well, let me ask you a couple of, I guess, questions concerning tradecraft and historiography. I think the listeners will be interested in this. The first is, yeah. Norman <laughs> Neymar wrote a very famous book about this. Was this sort of the historiographical background to this book?
1: It was. I mean, I read I read Neymar um, in the beginning and it was a very powerful book uh, to read as a sort of young undergraduate. And it sparked some of my interest in this topic. Um, the interesting thing about uh, the NAMAC's work was that I think when I got to the archives, uh, I noticed a complexity uh, in the sources on some questions that wasn't uh, evident uh, in some of his dealings with it, particularly with regard to the continuation of troop violence. And, uh, uh, in post-war Germany by Soviet occupation forces. Uh, so I think, uh, given the fact that he wrote such a, a broad and encompassing uh, history, a survey really of those four years of occupation, there was a lot of room uh, to advance uh, some of the uh, uh, some of the research and some of the argument, uh, particularly in those fields. And I think uh, that's what I did. So using the, him as a basis and um, trying, at least in terms of advancing arguments based on new materials that have become available uh, through declassification, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. try to come to, I guess, a more nuanced uh, understanding of really what went so wrong in the Soviet occupation.
0: And and then, I I guess, uh, the the, the follow-up question to that, which again, as I say, is perhaps tradecraft, is that... I guess Neymar didn't get to look at a lot of the things that you got to look at. Could you talk a little bit about access to these documents? Well, because I, they're they're really in, in a weird sense. I mean, if you are a Soviet patriot or or pine for the Soviet Union, they're very damning. Yeah. It,
1: you know, uh, Neymar would have been uh, researching in the early '90s when uh, the archives threw open uh, the doors, and you know, many Westerners were able uh, to gain access. And because of the lack of funding and the lack of staff, access was really a free-for-all. It was uh, very much representative of the wild 90s in Russia itself at that time. Uh, After this, same from the mid-90s onward, probably in response to some of the things that were being um, published in the West, uh, revealing a lot of the sort of sordid history that had been buried for so long, there was an attempt uh, to restore uh, some greater control over archival access going into the late 90s and then more so with um, Putin's presidency onward. But the the funny thing is is that the amount of documentation available far exceeds the capacity of any major archive, particularly that of the State Archive in Garth Go- in to actually conduct a, a survey to to classify or declassify things. So it's really a, a strange situation where some things that may have been considered sensitive 40 years ago may still be classified, whereas other things, just by virtue of the of, of the breakdown of the Soviet Union and, and the way the archives work, have become much more available. Mm. And I think the trick that I found in being there, I was there for 2006 where much of my research was done in, in, in the archives, Was that so many of these these interesting revealing documents weren't necessarily where you'd expect them to be? Mm. So the the horrible documents that talked about the breakdown of military discipline, uh, not always were in letters or reports on that topic. In fact, in many ways, there were in many instances they were buried uh, under other headings and in other areas where you wouldn't expect them. I mean, there were there were documents about uh, the poor financial state of some. Uh, areas in the occupation machinery and then there was a huge explanation in this very fiscal document as to why that was the case and lo and behold the reason why was because of the continual um, uh, outbreaks of violence against civilians which was harming the local economy and making it impossible to re-establish basic and essential services in the area so there's uh, the tricks you learn on the way i guess when you spend enough time in these archives that ameliorate some of the problems that uh, arose in the mid to late 90s with the reclassification of materials mm-hmm. um i i do sort of agree with you that some of this um some of this material is damning uh, with respect to the very patriotic uh view of soviet military history i think some of it's damning, indeed. It's some of it is quite the opposite. I think it raises new and complex questions about uh, war memory and, and trauma. And and most of all, I think, actually perhaps it allows us to conclude what, what I've done, is that it, the Red Army wasn't just this, this red mist that, that rolled, that, that steamrolled over, over Europe and, and brought it to its knees and raped and killed everything in its sight as some of the uh, uh, publications in the late 90s and early 2000s uh, seem to be saying that in fact within this, 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 this broad red mist there were many different mm-hmm. uh, many different uh, organisations, there were many different people with different ideas about occupation uh, people with different concepts of duty uh, and they all well, it all came to a head um, near the end of the war in the final months. And what we got uh, after the supposed end in May 1945 was the emergence of a new conflict uh, in Germany among millions of uh, occupation forces who each had their own idea of what occupied Germany should look like and how occupied uh, or- occupation organs and occupation soldiers should behave toward each other and toward the occupied population. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, let me ask you this. I'm glad you mentioned that, what their attitudes were. What kind of planning had the Soviets done concerning <laughs> not, the occupation of Germany? Not, not much. What did they want to <laughs> do? Much. I mean, what did, they, what did they want to do? They knew <laughs> they were going, and so what, what did they say, okay, here's what we're going to do?
1: Um, there, were, there were two overriding concerns. Um, one... Uh, was to stop uh, Germany's capacity to wage war in the way that it had uh, against the Soviet Union, and that meant massive demilitarization. And the related concern was to compensate um, for the incredible losses uh, in the Soviet Union due to the German invasion and occupation, uh, partly by dismantling German factories uh, and repatriating them back, or, or sorry, and, and sending them to the Soviet Union. Uh, to be reconstructed. Uh, these security industrial concerns were two sides of the same coin, and that was really all that, that was concrete in the Soviet approach to post-war Germany, apart from that politically and socially, it was incredibly opportunistic, it was flexible. There were different groups within the Soviet occupation machinery that had different ideas of what they wanted to achieve, and that was reflected also in Moscow. Um, so, I don't think it's uh, accurate to speak of a, say, a Soviet post war plan or policy that's quite uh, well thought out and, and it's implemented. Mm-hmm. In fact, in many cases, what we see is a huge division between what Moscow wants and what's achieved on the ground, uh, particularly between uh, perhaps if we're to reduce it to the major uh, protagonists in this story of, of Stalin and Zhukov, uh, who have very different ideas of what. Post-war Germany should look like
0: at one point in the book you say and I don't know whether you're speaking of Stalin or somebody in the Soviet administration that the plan I, I don't know if that's the right word was to enter Germany disarm Germany take as much stuff as they thought was necessary back to the Soviet Union and then leave pretty quickly after installing a friendly government yeah I, so, so they I, didn't think they were going to be there for a long time no, I,
1: I don't think so, and uh, in at the beginning of 1945 I think this was a general uh, understanding among both uh, American and, and Soviet policy makers, that the, what post-war Germany would look like wasn't particularly evident, I mean it was quite vague, but there was a, a general understanding that Germany needed to be hit hard, it needed to be uh, put into a situation where it would be unable to wage the sort of war that it had, remember it had, Know, invaded Russia twice in 20 years through Poland, and there was a general agreement on this. I mean, the, the the correspondence between Soviet and US diplomats is available in the archive, and you can and you can see that there is a vague but general understanding that the purpose of the occupation will be to achieve these aims, and that they can be achieved in a relatively short period of time what type of government will be left there when uh, troops uh, in the main uh, are sent home is considered to be more of an administration um, that's quite friendly to the Allies rather than some sort of strong federal democratically elected government. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these are the, the general strains of, of thinking, I think, that are shared Um this is one of the themes in my book that if you put yourself in the position of Soviet policymakers who are talking to the Americans, um, probably until and even after the, the Potsdam conference, it's quite reasonable to assume that, that they're on the same page and it's quite reasonable to assume that, that what the Soviets were doing in Germany, i.e. removing every piece of industry, every cow, pig, <laughs> Everything else they could lay their hands on uh, wasn't necessarily beyond the pale of American imagination for what should be happening. Mm -hmm. It becomes a huge – it becomes an issue later on Um, once there's talk of uh, economic integration, once there's there's talk of establishing a a broad economic plan to encompass all the zones. And there's much to be said for the argument that while the Soviets should have known that it would have become a problem – Uh, But but nonetheless, I think that if you do put yourself as we are supposed to as historians uh, in the shoes of our historical subjects, then there's much to be said uh, for a massive misunderstanding uh, in policy approaches as as one of the major reasons why we see a breakdown in Soviet allied cooperation over Germany. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. So then to generalize, and generalization is dangerous, of course, the – uh, political authorities, and especially Stalin, of course, thought they were going to go in, they were going to remove all this industrial equipment, they were going to demilitarize Germany, they were going to install a friendly government, and they were going to leave. Now let's turn to the army itself, and especially the soldiers. One thing you do a good job of in the book is painting a kind of psychological picture of Soviet soldiers who entered Germany and how they had been prepared for the occupation what they expected to do. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, I don't think it's possible to write a history of the Soviet occupation of post-war Germany without beginning with the uh, German occupation of the Soviet Union. Um, And although I don't produce a, a vast survey of that occupation, which many other historians have done quite well, I think it's important to outline... That the fundamental experience of you know, Soviet troops who were crossing uh, the western parts of the Soviet Union on their way to Germany was that they were crossing, well, in Stalin's words, over the over the corpses of their loved ones, um, going through uh, town after town that had been destroyed uh, by the Wehrmacht's uh, scorched earth policy, going through area after area that was nothing but, uh, well, that, a, that had been raised to the ground where populations were sparse, where the able-bodied population had been uh, removed, sent to Germany as slave labour, uh, where the corpses were left either in, in, in mass graves, hastily buried, or as a warning hanging off, uh, if there were lampposts, off the lampposts, if not. These experiences... Uh, exacerbated the existing uh, hatreds the existing fears and traumas that had been suffered at the front that had been suffered in the rear and prepared I think uh, a certain uh, uh, prepared or made made normal uh, a type of behaviour that we would see in post-war Germany I mean the issue of rape for instance What's often forgotten in discussions of the mass rape of, uh, of women in Central Europe by uh, Soviet soldiers is that the parameters of soldier relations to women had been set early in the war uh, in the German occupation of the Soviet Union. Uh, the parameters, really, of this war of annihilation were set in this area, particularly by the German invaders, also by the Soviets in response. And it was by no means, I think, surprising that when Soviet troops reached uh, the lair of the fascist beast, in their speak, uh, that this uh, explosion was to occur. And it would be an explosion, particularly in Germany, because it was women, children, the elderly, the infirm, who were left in eastern Germany whilst the rest of the population had evacuated or been mobilized. Uh, so we, that coming together of the experience of, of troops and the geographical reality, demographic reality rather, of Eastern Germany at the beginning of 1945, protected by a very flimsy German Ninth Army, was, was really the, the, the factors that came together to help to explain why at least in the latter stages of the war there was such an explosion of mass violence and why that explosion was essentially sexual. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then there's a whole group of historians who will talk about um, the problems of sexualization in Stalinist society and, and so forth, and all that's quite important. But I think it's at the same time it's necessary to prioritise the importance of of the experience of wartime trauma, setting the parameters of of soldier relations with women, uh, and the demographic reality of Eastern Germany being in 1945. For me, these are primary. Uh, causes to help explain what happened Mm -hmm. during this period. Mm -hmm.
0: And another thing you point out in the book is that this is part of a disjuncture between what you might think of as vague strategic guidelines or plans, that is, go into Germany, take everything and leave, and the propaganda, which was also being issued from above, concerning what to do in Germany that was aimed at soldiers. And actually the book opens with Soldiers marching down a road and seeing placati, these placards yeah. that say "Go kill Germans <laughs> as many as you can." Yeah. What do they say exactly? I can't remember.
1: Oh, there's a, there's a few variations. Uh, the, I mean, this, you raise a very, a very good point, a very interesting point, and that is, I mean, I, we talked about the not so much of a plan, but a, but a set of concrete ideas about at least basically what the regime wanted to achieve in post-war Germany. Uh, the problem is is that there were uh, Soviet organisations operating in Germany that were charged with completely opposite uh, missions uh, by uh, the Moscow leadership. So we have a, a fundamentally paradoxical approach um, to the administration of post-war Germany. So on the on the one hand, you have these very powerful Moscow-backed uh, organisations with, with thousands of, of troops and or uh, uh, civilian. Uh, personnel that are removing uh, uh, as much uh, uh, industrial uh, equipment as they can. They're removing agricultural equipment and livestock and so forth um, for shipping it back to the Soviet Union. Uh, But at the same time, you have what's called the Soviet military administration in Germany, Svag, that is charged with establishing law and order and a basic functioning economy and essential services in post-war Germany. Um, and these two uh, aims are uh, diametrically opposed, uh, and this has been noted by by many uh, historians before. I think what became evident to me in the archives, though, is that for Stalin and, and for the leader and for much of the leadership, it wasn't necessarily a contradiction, because in their thinking, were, their priority was attached to removing things from Germany. And the administration was supposed to establish control over what was left behind. And if we understand the Soviet approach in terms of priorities, then it becomes completely understandable as to why they weren't too concerned in 1945 in Moscow about the outbreak of mass violence against German civilians. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, much of the military command was concerned about this because they too, like Svag, had been charged with establishing... Law and order in this area, and were in a position where they were seeing their orders uh, uh, about improving discipline, about not attacking the population, being completely ignored by the officer corps and not implemented. Now, that disconnect, if you will, between uh, the officer corps and the uh, rank and file—sorry, between the command, the officer corps, and rank and file. Uh, was quite evident to Soviet observers during this time, and so much so that it was left to Zhukov, the great marshal of the war leader of, 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 of the Red Army, to try and fix it. And all of his attempts to do so by introducing the most draconian codes of discipline in a modern army that we've ever seen um, were blocked by Stalin. He was very wary of uh, the military... Uh, exercising that type of power, particularly far from Moscow. So we have one approach from Moscow that's, well, quite happy to prioritise their interests in Germany and quite unperturbed by the fact that their occupation organs are waging a type of war against one another. In fact, one might go so far as to say that Stalin preferred the situation where you had the security forces and the military at each other's at each other's throats, where you had troops from the Red Army fighting against troops from the Soviet military administration, then fighting against troops from the security forces. The idea of having this type of uh, all-encompassing civil war, if you will, to use that term, uh, far from home, uh, my sense is was much more comfortable to Stalin in terms of uh, uh, placating uh, fears of... Uh, the military, assuming too much importance far from home uh, and possibly uh becoming a bastion of resistance in the post war world that may threaten uh, the party state control in moscow mm-hmm. and remember there are twelve almost twelve million men under arms uh, many of whom are experiencing the bounties of, of bourgeois civil- <laughs> civilization <laughs> in in central and western europe too, and that 's under the control of Ruovv and the rest of the military. Of nominally under the control of the military hierarchy so there are many concerns about domestic politics uh, of which uh, Germany is, is 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 in many ways some only a part and uh, that's sometimes forgotten i think in, in approaches to uh, to this topic that mm-hmm. for i think for much of the moscow leadership uh, uh, germany was certainly important it was very important but it was part of a broader set of concerns um uh, in post-war politics and
0: post-war development. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you point out in the book as well that I found very interesting because it relates to another topic is the fact that, and I think this is forgotten too, as the Soviet forces entered uh, Western Poland and then entered Germany itself, they liberated a lot of Soviet POWs and basically slave laborers and that these people were sort of just released upon the german population and they were often housed because the soviets didn't have housing where they yeah. had where they had stayed under the germans could you talk a little bit about those people and the effort to control them and how many there were and that kind of thing
1: it's 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 fascinating to me how quickly uh, the image of liberated pows and slave laborers turns from uh, sort of being objects uh, uh, for compassion being objects of, <laughs> of a woe and antagonism um, by not only the, the Soviets but by all allied, uh, allied governments. Um, the, I, I, I struggled to see a different way in which this could have played out actually because what you had was uh, millions of people who had suffered the brunt of uh, really I mean, German slavery in most cases for so long Being unleashed upon a population because not only was there not enough housing, but there wasn't enough of a structure of occupation governance that could have uh, supervised these people or provided them with enough food, shelter, and so forth. So once they were liberated, there wasn't really much that could be done with them um, apart from organizing their repatriation back to the Soviet Union or organising their uh, entrance into the army if they were considered to be uh, sufficiently able and trustworthy in that sense. So it was always going to happen in one way or another, this outbreak, and I don't see a way in which they could have been controlled, if you will. Uh, many of, the, uh, of, the, of those who were liberated were Soviet nationalities, as I said, um, came under the control of the, the Soviets. Many came into the army, and prove themselves to be quite uh, motivated fighters. Let's say that much. <laughs> um, but there were a lot of poles, remember, uh, and others who just wanted to walk home. Uh, that was that was their overriding concern. And if they could take a pig or a cow or uh, the former landlord's, uh, you, know, you know, divan on the way, then then, then all the better. Uh, you know, it was one of those strange things that. The greatest competitor to, to Soviet reparation gangs that were taking everything they could were Polish civilians who'd been in camps for the past two or three years and were carting things on the way back home. Uh, Renumerance pay, I guess, what they consider to be quite deserved. Uh, so this is an incredible human chaos and drama that, that we're seeing in post-war Germany. Millions of people who have been displaced forcibly have been uh, who have endured some of the most horrible experiences of their lives suddenly no longer under the control of any one thing or uh, if they are under the control, it's only nominal, uh, walking around post-war Eastern Germany <laughs> and post-war Western Germany and really trying to get by and make a living or, or, or worse. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the setting in which... <laughs> The Soviets are trying to establish, base, or at least SWAG is trying to establish basic, a basic sense of war and order in their central services. And this is another reason why I think their the meager, relatively meager successes in the beginning are so incredibly fantastic. Because you wonder how on earth they were able to do this, um, given that they had on the one hand millions of people who were not necessarily under their control, who they were trying to. Uh, to cart off into into camps and so forth for repatriation, this or that, and then you had the the troops who were, you know, conducting their own occupation policy and their own behaviour, and, and not under their control either. Uh, so this is very much the the chaotic context in which in which Spag emerges. Uh, and I guess the follow on point, I'm not sure if you wanted to discuss this, but the the major uh, contest, the major issue, the major tension. Which we see that arises out of this very uh, complex and ill defined policy toward Germany is that troop violence becomes the major sore point between the military administration, SFAG, that is charged with establishing law and order, and the uh, military, particularly in its lower rungs, that is not particularly concerned, the officer corps, that is not particularly concerned in reining in the uh, excesses of its troops and are quite happy to live uh, the way that they're living as occupation soldiers treating Germany as a vanquished foe and not as uh, an area which needs to be administered properly, which is Swag's remit. Mm-hmm. So th- this is the, the major tension that emerges and exacerbated by Stalin's actions in stopping Zhukov from pursuing draconian measures to try and establish discipline and close that synapse between the army command and the officer corps. Uh, it probably gets to a point in the middle of 1946 where you have uh, uh, groups uh, representing the, the Soviet military administration, and representing the military, that are openly fighting in the streets of Germany over a whole range of issues, uh, over booze, over women, over sometimes jurisdictional control, uh, but in many cases over the right to act as they wish in that particular area. Uh, so this is the fascinating aspect of uh, the – some people will call it the breakdown of Soviet authority. I'd call it the establishment of Soviet authority in a very strange way on the streets of Germany uh, throughout 1945 and 1946 and early 1947 that really had not appeared anywhere in the literature but was glaringly evident in the mass of archival evidence that was available in Moscow particularly. And, and that, I think, is one of the major innovations of the book. And then uh, the analysis of this, uh, which emerges, and the conclusion that uh, this, this contest, this madness, uh, was really to be quite expected, given the way in which post-war Stalinism was emerging, uh, as well, I think, makes a contribution to the way in which we can understand this
0: post-war period. Mm-hmm. Well, all armies have codes of... Um, conduct, respect. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. They have codes of conduct, and and um, so when as the Soviets entered uh, Poland and then and then Germany, I, I, I suspect they were they were probably not lot, They were not supposed to do the things that they ended up doing. What sort of um, military discipline was imposed by the army itself, not by Swag, as the uh, Soviets entered these areas? Well. It was quite difficult, I think,
1: uh, on the one hand for uh, the army command and the rest to try and uh, rouse the troops for the final stage of the war um, by allowing those type of placati, as you said, and and allowing the the saturation of of, uh, wartime anti-German propaganda in the army. Uh, And on the other hand, then to ask uh, the soldiers to differentiate between German civilians and soldiers. I mean, remember, much of the wartime propaganda had not made that distinction Mm -hmm. up until Stalin started speaking about bad Nazis and good Germans later in 1945. So that was a difficult balance uh, that commanders, that some commanders took upon themselves to to navigate. Um, uh, Others didn't. Others couldn't have cared less uh, until it became apparent to them that the burning of... Of villages, that the, uh, the mass attacks on civilians was making it, making it impossible to actually uh, implement their basic military tactics um, and was causing greater losses and, and greater breakdowns in discipline than they could handle. So I think for some commanders who may not have been concerned about uh, differentiating between civilians and troops, in the beginning uh, by February 1945 it became apparent to them that just for the Basic uh, conduct of military operations, it was necessary to do so. And there was another group of commanders who were very concerned, who were perhaps, who thought long term, uh, and could see the potential difficulties that were arising between this sort of unabashed attack on civilians. Um, And many of them took or tried to take extreme measures uh, to implement basic military discipline. Uh, Commanders or lower level commanders can. Executed troops in front, executed soldiers in front of the troop um, for violence and rape against uh, civilians and so forth. Um, but I think uh, the biggest problem that they were having uh, was that they were speaking in a language of uh, military discipline and in a language of military duty that was completely alien to uh, the troops with regard to Germany. And even though that was the case what stops this from being a complete uh, uh, a complete catastrophe in terms of just mass unabated violence against soldiers is the uh, way in which I think lower level lieutenants uh, uh, NCOs are able to in some way exercise authority um, over troops over units um, to try and keep at least uh, military conduct in the purview of a soldier's duty, while all this was happening, and remember, the German defences east of the uh, of the Vistula River uh, collapsed, and then west of the uh, of the river, uh, as the as the uh, Soviets advanced where with with the major forces were, uh, they collapsed in a matter of, of days. This was the fastest advance that the Soviets had recorded in the entire war, and so whilst the rest of the army regrouped. Uh, closer to Berlin, uh, there was a period of about, I think, two months where the Red Army consolidated its position on the western banks of the Vistula River and then going into Germany and started building its bridges and so forth, preparing for the final attack in Berlin over the Oder River. And in that period, the population that was left in that uh, geographical area between the two major rivers bore the brunt of uh, the Soviet advance and bore the brunt of really four years of German occupation in the Soviet Union. And for all of those horrid, brutal things that were committed there, these poor people who had been left by the rest would evacuated them, uh, suffered terribly. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Now... You mentioned cases in which soldiers were actually executed. Do we have any statistics on the number of executions or, no, or people put in I, penal battalions or anything like that? Not, not
1: that, not that I, not that I know of, or that I've come across. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence. Um, there's a lot of discussion and reports about these sorts of things. Um, but as for statistical tables and things like that, I, I don't imagine so. Given the nature of of the offence, um, what I What I would say, though, is that we do have the records of uh, military tribunals that are attached to each army and the sentences that they give out in response, uh, sorry, that they give out to soldiers who are found guilty of committing violence against civilians. And we do have statistics for those, but they start really in June 1945. Mm -hmm. And really, I mean, the the amount of uh, prosecutions and sentences given out do not match the uh, scale of violence, but they are still quite significant. Um, particularly when you when you think about you know sentences of eight to twelve years given to troops with outstanding military records and numerous medals uh, who are found guilty of uh, robbing or raping women in Germany uh, that are sent back to penal uh, colonies or to the Gulag system, if you will, in, in the Soviet Union. Now it's not uh, extraordinary in the sense that it's it's a it's a long sentence. It's a relatively short sentence by modern standards. But when you think of the fact that that most of the people who are committing this by no means would have seen a a military tribunal, and that the people who really end up uh, before the trib- tribunal and being sent back to the Soviet Union are those who would be caught in the act. Um or there would be overwhelming evidence against them from soviet not and not german sources and that was a rare i think combination uh, that would uh, come together to account for a serious prosecution mm-hmm. and sentence such as the ones that I talked about in most cases uh, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be the, the case i mean there were a lot of accusations there were a lot of uh, investigations uh, into these things um, in response to German complaints, in response to the complaints from party officials and from civil officials uh, to the Soviets, and many of them were quite sure that this or that had happened. That you know, the step then to getting that dealt with by the military pro- uh, prosecutors' office, that were perennially understaffed and overworked, was in
0: many cases a step too far. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned in the book that junior officers and NCOs would actually attempt to protect their soldiers from any sort of inquest, not only by turning a blind eye, but once an inquest started, they would kind of rally around and attempt to yeah. protect.
1: A- absolutely. I mean, the, the one of the major sources of tension between Stagg and the army were SPAG investigations and complaint reports written to superior joint authorities. So what the dispute over troop violence uh, for many Uh, army commanders was a veiled attempt, a veiled criticism of the quality of their command. And that is how they interpreted Spag's behaviour in this respect. And by doing so, I think uh, they put much less, uh, or they invested much less importance in the nature of the complaint itself, uh, that of their troops behaving wildly, uh, and invested much more in the necessity of protecting the unit and stopping any sort of um, evidence being uh, gathered against it uh, that could be sent to their superiors and, and cause serious problems. Because remember, superior authorities, even by the beginning of 1945, by, by, 19, by perhaps February, are very concerned about clamping down the violence. Um, but as we said before, there's a disconnect between what they want and what the officer corps can actually deliver. Because it's the officer corps and it's the low-level commanders that are on the ground with their troops that are trying to balance, in in some cases, um, uh, the two imperatives of allowing their troops to behave like the victors that they are, and at the same time trying to maintain a sense of unit discipline, at least for the sake of keeping the unit together. It's a very difficult balance to keep when there's no war to fight. And in many cases, the command staff don't really appreciate the difficulty that the lower level officers are facing. So these are all the sort of uh, complex things that are happening at this time and that issue between Sveg, Commandants and army officers who are often uh, located in the same geographical area and uh, interacting with each other, that issue of uh, violent troops and what to do with them becomes the major sticking point between them and that's what accounts, among other things, for the... Souring of relations and for the, well, the development of violence between these two groups. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they actually fight. Oh, they fight and, and, I mean, in many cases, the fighting isn't necessarily a direct result of, of this issue. It isn't a direct result of the spanker without making a complaint and sending prosecutors to investigate this or that soldier or this or that officer for, for rapes or for whatever. In many cases, the two groups come together in a, in a common public space, perhaps at a theatre, at a bar, and there's tension, there's drinking, and just like many other um, occupation armies, <laughs> there's, there, there's trouble. But what the, the uh, thing to remember is, is that whilst not all of the violence, or even much of the violence, is necessarily uh, caused by uh, this tension between them, or at least articulated as the cause. The fact is, is that afterwards, when there's investigations as to who's responsible for the violence, or if there's any attempt at a joint approach to uh, uh, stopping or reducing the violence, it's exactly that tension, that jurisdictional tension between the two groups, that makes that impossible to pursue. And thus we have, I think, the major cause for the continuation of mass violence against uh, civilians and among occupation forces. It's the fact that it's their jurisdi- jurisdi- jurisdictional tension sorry, that makes it impossible for a joint approach between the military administration and the army toward ending uh, the chaos and ending the violence. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's apparent in the sources that I came across that wasn't apparent in the literature.
0: H- how are the Sfag officers and officials recruited. Who were they?
1: Well, they began uh, as military officers that yeah. were recruited from the army. This is this is the, the fascinating thing, is that it's it's born of the Red Army. Yeah. Sfag is born of the Red Army. Zhukov is the head of both. He's yeah. the head of Sfag and of the group of Soviet occupation forces in Germany, GSLVJ. I mean, this is, and you ask yourself, I, I say this in the introduction, how on earth can there be this emerging struggle between these two groups? But I think it's important to remember that, that disconnect, that synapse between the, the command and the lower-level officers, particularly in the army. Um, so that while it made complete sense to the higher-ups who straddled positions both in SPAG and GSOVG, that there should be a joint approach to dealing with the problem of military violence and there should be draconian disciplinary innovations, they weren't implemented on the ground. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the 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 really interesting thing is that the types of people in SPAG... Um, uh, recruited uh, it wasn't as if they had a recruitment process where they wanted to say okay we need a, a really good communist who, who speaks German who understands the duty of us uh, of occupiers, protecting the occupied population. so It wasn't so much that they didn't have the, the capacity to do that. I mean there was a greater proportion of party membership in SPAG but the real thing was that the situation that SPAG officers, commandants found themselves in was that they were given a duty, they were given a set of instructions, and the only way that they could implement those set of instructions was to come to grips, was to come to arms, with the military forces that were located within their area. So we have an area that is populated by both uh, SMAG administrators and military forces, both with very different, different agendas for what they want to achieve contradictory agendas. And this sets, well, it, it creates a setting for the mass tension and violence that we see among occupation forces here. So even if they were not particularly concerned about establishing law and order, they may not have been sticklers for discipline and so forth. The very position that they find themselves in, I think, develops that type of mentality. And and this is quite evident in that we see many SWAG offices at the beginning of June 1945 when SWAG is created, are very open... Uh, and are very willing to speak to their comrades uh, in the Red Army, to to their fellow officers about how to deal with this particular situation, but by the end of the year, we don't see that willingness anymore. Mm -hmm. By the end of the year, we see SPAG officers at their wit's end, and really adopting an aggressive and violent response to what they consider to be the uh, lack of willingness of officers to institute discipline among their forces. And so, these are the, I guess, the settings that come in place that help
0: to explain what goes wrong. Did Swag officers and personnel have the authority to arrest soldiers of the Red Army, and did they arrest uh, them?
1: Yes, they did. That that was a major sticking uh, a major sticking point. In fact, they may have had the authority to establish military patrols to go out and to see who was drunk and who was attacking people or who was robbing things, and they did. There were massive patrols, but. What happened once they were arrested? I mean, what could they do with them? They couldn't necessarily send them to the prosecutor's offices that were overstaffed. They couldn't keep them in the guardhouse for long because, lo and behold, the officer of the <laughs> uh, unit to which the uh, captured, uh, to which the arrested soldier belonged, would invariably knock on the door of the guardhouse and demand the release. Mm-hmm. And if they were released, even without that uh, imperative, because they couldn't be held for much longer, then Without the uh, legal process to pursue, oh sorry, to follow the arrest, invariably they ended up arresting the same guys mm-hmm. and others over and over again. It was quite a process of arresting, letting them go and so forth. So arrest wasn't a, an effective mechanism to, in most cases, to stop the level of mass violence that was being committed in that particular area. Mm-hmm. In fact, if anything, Although it may have taken the offending soldiers off the streets for a few days, it increased tension with the unit to which the soldier belonged, commensurately, <laughs> and we saw a greater breakdown of relations. We see a greater breakdown of relations between them, and and violence. I mean, fights over uh, the possession of arrested soldiers is one of a, a major a major problem, and not only in Germany. Uh, in Germany, it's a serious problem. But even when I, I was just in Moscow in in GAF, looking at um, demobilisation the continuation of of uh, say military problems in the USSR, and again, this is a problem in Moscow. It's a problem in the western borderlands. It's a problem at home. You know, the question of who has the authority in this polycratic system? Who has the authority to to arrest? You know, how dare a military administrative official arrest uh, a soldier from a guards regiment? You know these are the sorts of questions that we come across. And whereas in Moscow there's a clear, uh, a central authority that can deal with this problem. In Germany we don't have that clear central authority. We just have the tentacles of the machine emerging in all these different areas, combating rather than a central. Uh, resolutory body and that's what makes I think this such a fascinating uh, case study of what post-war Stalinism looks like Mm -hmm. and what it can look
0: like when it's it's quite, you know, when it's exported I guess. Eventually the violence uh, does end in Germany how does it end? uh, Why?
1: Two things demobilization which removes the majority of soldiers Probably from about 1.5 million at the end of the war to about 350,000 by 1947, and when you have only 350,000 left, it's quite easier to lock in the barracks. <laughs> I mean that there were. I mean there were such there, there were huge um, uh, campaigns by Svag and the others to to increase military discipline and so forth. Well, some of them were effective. We see somewhat of a of a of a decrease in, in um, violence going into late 1946, but really it's those two things that stop the violence, and it's also the fact that occupation policy changes um, from late 1946 going to 1947. The smash and grab policy of getting everything out of Germany, not concerning, not concerned about the future and so forth, um, that changes because the difficulties with the Allies bring home to the Moscow leadership that their anticipated unification, particularly economic unification, will not go ahead, that the short-term occupation is becoming less and less viable, and that really they're going to be in Germany for a long time, which I don't think is what was wanted mm-hmm. in much of the Moscow leadership before the end of the war. They're going to be in Germany for a long time. The problem with that is is that the consequence of their, of their actions will now materialise. Uh, They may have materialised before, but the Soviets couldn't have been there to suffer them. Now they have an industrial wasteland on their hands. So instead of that being a guarantor of German neutrality in the future, now it becomes a burden because they're long-term occupiers and they need to rebuild what they've destroyed. Instead of political concerns, i.e. gaining some sort of popular electoral mandate for the uh, Socialist Unity Party, the Moscow-backed party, at this stage, uh, whilst that was uh, happening in terms of political manoeuvring and Machiavellian politics, the terms of creating a mass popular party uh, now becomes a huge issue uh, because uh, the majority of the occupied population despise the Soviet occupiers and what they consider to be uh, their puppet party, in the Socialist media Party, and and these two major issues, that of the politics and economics, are the major bad inheritances, if you will, of SPAG as they assume power in the zone, in the Soviet occupation zone, primarily in late 1946 and early 1947. So it's it's a question of uh, demobilisation, uh, uh, returning the soldiers to the barracks and not allowing them to take leave without strict authorization. Uh, cutting off fraternal relations between soldiers and uh, occupied population and the broader shift in Soviet policy that made the types of violence that we saw in 1945, 1946 unimaginable in this new policy setting. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So Mm -hmm. I think these are the major things that that change in late 1946 and early 1947 that uh, end the violence of, let's say, drastically reduce the violence because there's still outbreaks of violence afterwards mm-hmm. but generally what we see is an occupied territory turning in to something else i think from 1946 47 onward and that transition is central to explaining the emergence of the GDR mm-hmm.
0: oh, the, the, the i think you well described the difficulty with which swag that is the soviet occupation or the um, soviet occupation administration had to operate in, in the German context, especially vis-a-vis the army. But nonetheless, in the book, uh, I noted a kind of note of admiration for Svog. I mean, at several points, you say they did a remarkable job given their resources. Can you talk yeah. just a little bit about, they're kind of the hero of the book in a weird sort of way, if this book has a hero, that they really did yeah. try to do something good. And they actually achieved quite a bit, like feeding Germany. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of their achievements? Yeah.
1: I... I- I try to remind my readers uh, to remember what was at stake in 1945. Uh, what was at stake? The Germans had waged a war of annihilation against the Soviet Union, uh, which resulted in mass devastation and death that we all know about. But in Soviet mines, uh, with... Uh, the advance of of, of the Red Army in 1945, the the central question occupying many of them was, would uh, they return the favour? Would they launch this war of extermination on German territory, or would they not? In a sense, would they allow the Germans to live life which the Germans had denied them? I mean, this is the seriousness of the situation that's sometimes forgotten when we speak of this period. And what we see a mass violence, we see mass rape, we see horrid things, but we don't see the extermination of large sections of population. We don't see uh, the continuation of the war that had been fought on the Eastern Front uh, until then. And that's a significant departure. And whilst many people may have had no sympathy or empathy with with Germans did. What's fascinating to me is the way in which many SWAG officers uh, understood their duty of establishing an occupation territory based on law and order and based on providing essential services and survival to the German population. The way in which they made that transition um, from uh, the horrors of their occupation, from being occupied to becoming occupiers, was fascinating to me. And a chapter in the book, chapter five, talks about some of the difficulties that these officers had morally in trying to make that transition, and the and the arguments they had with other Soviet soldiers who'd lost everything, you know, who, Soviet soldiers who'd said to them, "How can you speak to me about protecting Germans when they've killed everyone in my family?" I mean, these are the the debates and the issues and the moral quandaries that these people face, and I think that for such people who could not forget, but emerge from that incredible trauma which they'd suffered to become the type of occupiers that they wanted to be and that took off demanded of them. I think that's an incredible feat. And part of a broader sense of humanity and intelligence among these officers who understood that they would not replicate the types of occupation behaviour that they had suffered, but they would in some ways... Uh, well, elevate uh, uh, their behaviour to a higher level. And that, for me, is fascinating and worthy of admiration, particularly when they're operating in the most difficult and and complex conditions. So if there are heroes in this, it's very hard to speak of them. It's some of those officers who are able to to do this and and essentially ensure the survival of uh, a German population uh, that, for all intents and purposes uh, in many cases should have uh, suffered much greater levels of of starvation and so forth than was available given the horrid food situation at the time yeah I wanted to and actually I, just,
0: I wanted to talk just about that because one of the things I understood in the book for the first time is while the SVAG officers, although they were exporting grain and things, while, while they were trying to, I, I don't know if protect is the right word, but manage the German population and feed it, people were starving to death in the Soviet Union.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is this is a strange situation
0: that we find the Germans ourselves never in. would have allowed any such thing. No, like, I mean... The, the, no. <laughs> no, I mean,
1: the, the occupation aims of some not even the, I mean, the Nazi leadership, but also the Wehrmacht was quite clear, and they're documented now of, of, of starving to death what they considered excess population in the Soviet Union. They we're talking about tens of millions who they had no place in, in, in the expanded German German Empire, and and that was implemented to some extent in the Soviet Union. Yeah, I mean, so,
0: so, so I just have to emphasize: so the Soviets, the Swag officers, the Soviets were feeding the Germans, yes. while their own population was starving.
1: Well. Uh, we have, Do I have uh, that right? Well, the when you say their own population was starving, there were there huge problems in the, in the post-Soviet Union in feeding people. In fact, ration levels in Germany in, in some cases were better than in some places in the Soviet Union. Um, the starvation that we see is in the end of 1946 and going into 1947 uh, with the mass famine in the western parts of the Soviet Union. And, and there we see a continuation of of SPAG feeding and fighting for higher ration levels uh, in Germany whilst we have millions uh, dying in the Soviet Union. And this uh, tore at the, <laughs> the moral fibre of someone as uh, someone of the nature of, of Serov, uh, who was uh, General Serov, the head of the NKVD in Germany, he found it completely unbelievable that SPAG should be talking about maintaining uh, or increasing German ration levels. Um, whilst uh, there was severe drought in, in Moldova and Ukraine and so forth. So, yes, absolutely. But, I mean, I, I, I think uh, my major point is, is what happens perhaps earlier in 1945 where Svag and the army have to fight for food resources. So Svag has to fight the army um, for access to grain so it can feed the population and the army is fighting for access so it can feed its troops and this is a fascinating battle uh, in the in the ways in which the, the different officers employ all sorts of techniques to, to to fight the other um but it's it's quite an example of the of what I talked about before of, of swag officers uh, assuming or sort of assuming the mantle of of their work uh, morally uh, and so forth you know, considering that the health of their population was somehow reflective of the quality of their command and and that and that's quite um, that's quite evident there as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Just one final question about the book, and then we'll go on to your uh, the work that you're doing now. I, I noticed in the book, in the footnotes, I like footnotes that there's actually been a lot of work done on Sfog uh, in by, by Soviet historians. How is Fog remembered today among people who remember things like this? <laughs> so in in Russia. I, I don't think many people um, are too much about <laughs> Yeah, maybe we're a little too inside uh, baseball here, but I don't know. Well, you know, I'm going to give you an example. Uh, the, 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 I, this was 20 years ago now, but there was a book about Eisenhower and the American occupation forces in Germany. And basically it said that Eisenhower let the American occupation forces do some really bad things, including killing Soviet, or German POWs and raping a lot of women, and pillaging and burning. And so the American occupation forces in Germany are not so well thought of, at least among people who read books. Uh, at least they I don't know, not well thought of, but <laughs> the, you, you see what I mean. I mean, there was a, yeah, there I, was a, there I, was a little confluffle about this.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is always difficult um, when talking about my, my research in Russia because, I mean, we use the term occupation to say the Soviet occupation of Germany. And, and, I, and I use that because that's, that's what the historical actors themselves use. That's what Spag used. That's what uh, the Soviets used at the time. But it's it's a pejorative word in, in Russian uh, because uh, occupier, of course, uh, means German occupiers, mm-hmm. and that type of uh, moral equivalency that's indicated by the word is quite offensive. Uh, so it's always a question of, of trying to explain that that's not,
0: that's so, not what's in the So there. they always refer to these people as liberators.
1: Well... Liberators and, the and Italy. Administ- yeah. yes, and and those who know more would prefer them as administrators. Uh-huh. Uh, so it 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 quickly falls into that that huge problem of of wartime memory, and of wartime myth. Um, that that that's an issue in in Russia, and it's quite an uncomfortable. And you can understand why, um, given the complexities involved in all of this, and the fact that uh, the memory of the war has served. As a unifying force, uh, probably since the '60s, uh, in terms of the government's deployment of it, and particularly now uh, in the Putin regime, uh, sort of introducing newer generations to the, yeah. to the importance of the war. So it's, I mean, you're, it's a minefield in, in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and needless to say, you get very different responses <laughs> from uh, well intelligent, educated Russians and all on this sort of on this sort of issue when you talk about uh, your work as a study of the Soviet occupation of Germany. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: it's a hard thing to talk about. You know, I mean, sitting right in front of me is a book by Richard Overy called The Bombers and the Bombed, which basically says that yeah. the Allied bombing yeah. campaign did nothing. Well, it didn't do nothing, but what it's, its primary uh, result was uh, that, that we killed a lot of German civilians and destroyed a lot of German cities. Uh, I mean, he says a lot of other things as well. But it's a hard thing to talk about and to, to, to come to terms with what 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 the allies, the Western allies, did vis-a-vis that. And I just assume it's the same sort of thing with the Soviet yeah. liberation or occupation of Germany. I, I,
1: yeah, and I think it's important to explore the, the complexities in this. I think what bothered me in the late nineties and early two thousands was that was the I think amount of, of of even academic literature that that tended to to see the Red Army in almost a uniformly uh, negative light, almost a uniformly um, barbaric light, if you will. And it, it bothered me because it seemed as if what I was reading gave a much more complex picture. And I think one of the things that I hope that the, that the book does is at least demonstrate that it's quite a precarious practice to try and find heroes and villains uh, yeah. So quickly, and, you know, uh, and, and in such uh, simplicity in, in this period of the war and afterwards, um, and I hope that that at least the book has raised some questions in that respect.
0: Yeah, I think that it has, and it's a terrific book. And I want to thank you again for writing it. It's a really wonderful read, and I hope people go out and buy it today. We've been talking with Philip Slavesky about his book, "The Soviet Occupation of Germany: Hunger, Mass Violence, and the Struggle for Peace, 1945 to 19." Forty-seven from Cambridge University Press. Philip, let me ask you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is what is your current project? What are you working on now?
1: Well, I'll give you a title. Uh, it's, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I bet it changes. To, to, stop, to, to stop me from having to <laughs> explain it in, in too much detail. Okay. Uh, the, um, the chaotic and violent transition from war to peace in the Soviet Union.
0: Yeah, your editor is never is never going to let you use that. No, never. <laughs> 1945
1: <laughs> to <laughs> 1955, or wherever, wherever it takes me. I just right. Yeah, it been a month yeah, yeah. in a uh, uh, just now in, uh, in Garth. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, it was 30 30 plus degrees for the weeks that I was there. And oh goodness, I wondered why I was the only one in this in this little cube of a little cube of an a cube of a archive room reading about all of this stuff and I realized people who who work there quite often know better than to go mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> at the end of May and going into June.
0: Well, you know, when I, last time I worked in the archives, they were sort of intermittently open, you know, sort of open closed, kind of depends on the day you went and so, at least yeah. it's better than, at least they have a schedule, right? I mean, yeah, that's, so that's really, good. So, again, um, we've been talking to Philip Slaveski about his book, The Soviet Occupation of Germany, Mass, or, or Hunger, Mass Violence, and the Struggle for Peace, 1945 to 1947. Again, I urge you to read this book because there are revelations on, on every shocking page. So, uh, Philippe, let me say thank you for being on the show.
1: My pleasure,
0: Marsh. Absolutely. And let me say to everybody who listens to this podcast, thank you very much for listening to us, and we will talk to you next week.